You know how on a snow day it feels like the rules have been changed for a moment, right? And um, law isn't quite the same and the, the rules of physics aren't quite the same and it's like everyone has their finger on the pause button and, and you get to live in an alternate universe for a bit. Riding a bike at night to me feels like that. It feels like a snow day. You can see what your lights are able to illuminate. So it's like you're riding through a tunnel, uh, which is an awful lot of fun. You can hear a lot more than you can see. It's the world you know, but somehow a little different. This is The Mirror of Antiquity. I'm Curtis Dozier. What I like about punk is the sort of do-it-yourself quality about it. I love the idea that the artistry of it um, is is so deeply rooted in simplicity. Um, is doesn't doesn't require um, necessarily great attention to to beauty, but to to energy and just raw authenticity. It has a real kind of go for it quality about it um, that really appeals to me. There is a kind of relentless forward movement. You, you know, even if you know nothing about music, you can feel instantly. I've, I've basically loved that since I was a kid. Today on The Mirror of Antiquity, Joshua Sosin, who teaches classics at Duke University, tells us about what, at first, may seem like three completely different sides to his life. A set of gigantic, crowdsourced translations of ancient dictionaries by two people you've probably never heard of, Harpocration and Phocius, a lifelong love of punk music, and a desire to ride his bike for extremely long periods of time, so long, as you've heard, that he has to ride in the dark. Get rid of your stereotypes of what a classics professor should like to listen to or do on the weekends. It turns out that a musical genre that prides itself on sounding to many people like noise and pedaling for 27 hours have everything to do with the practice of scholarship on the ancient world. Welcome. The kinds of things that I tend to try to write about in my scholarship are um, sort of small problems that are incredibly difficult, but whose solution tends to clear away a bunch of clutter and allow us to have um, real clarity on issues of much greater importance. They're the kinds of things that, you know, I spend ridiculous hours just hammering away at the little stupid bits until I finally get there. I think the the phrase that uh, I... I mentioned a minute ago, relentless forward movement is is what I like best about it. And um, there's a kind of repetitive motion to it. And um, uh, this is the way that punk music feels to me. This is the way that um, cycling feels to me. You just have to, like, gut it out and keep on hammering. Josh has applied this way of being, this aesthetic, to the study of classical antiquity in surprising ways, including to the study of ancient lexica and lexicographers, that is, to dictionaries that survive from antiquity and the people who compiled them. That in itself is a surprising thing for most people. We usually think that we need a dictionary, a lexicon, 
to read ancient literature written in Latin or Greek. But the ancients had dictionaries of their own, just like we have English dictionaries. We use those for language that we, even as native speakers, don't understand. Some of these dictionaries try to encompass the whole of the English language. The Oxford English Dictionary is an example of this. Others carve out a section of the language to describe, like the website urbandictionary.com, which provides definitions of slang terms that are, shall we say, often unlikely to be found in traditional print dictionaries. One of the ancient dictionaries that Josh has been working on covers the language used by a set of ancient Greek authors known as the Attic Orators. This group includes some relatively well-known names, like Demosthenes, and some obscure ones, like Hyperides. But all of them gave speeches in the law courts of ancient Athens, and many of those speeches survive for us to read. These speeches were read and admired long after the cases in which they were given concluded. But because they were written for these cases, and not for wide distribution, there's a lot of obscure technical material in them, and even in antiquity, people who wanted to read them needed help. So someone named Harpocration made a dictionary of the language used by the Attic orators. A lot of the speeches have been lost, but Harpocration's dictionary mostly survives. And for someone like Josh, it's a priceless and endlessly fascinating resource. In antiquity already, and continuing straight through the Byzantine period, there was a substantial industry in trying to explain the sources that were then current, now ancient, and survive to us today. This took a number of forms. Uh, one of them is the our so-called scolia, which are, in effect, notes that were written in the margins of books. There were commentaries, which were sort of, you might think of them as self-standing versions of those, and students are very familiar with this kind of scholarly gesture. There were lexica and encyclopedias, which tend not to look like the lexica and encyclopedias that our students understand, but to be more narrowly, to be collections of comments and explanations and definitions that generally target specific ancient passages or words rather than some uh, fully self-standing abstracted list of things that a particular author thinks are important. You tend not to learn this in most undergraduate or even graduate curricula, but there is a more than millennium-long process by which highly educated people tried to explain stuff that appears in ancient Greek and Latin texts. One of these was um, a lexicon, a specialized lexicon written in the second century by a guy called Harpocration. And the lexicon uh, specifically targets texts uh, in the corpus of Attic orators, Demosthenes, Lysias, Isaiah, people we've heard of much of it addressing speeches that no longer survive to us, an awful lot of it addressing speeches that do. This is a guy who was much closer to uh, classical uh, Athens than we are, uh, who was prone to all kinds of error, as all humans are, but also had access to materials that we no longer do, had a much more natural 
sense of what Greek does and how it works than even the smartest of us can can achieve um, in our lifetimes. Writing often short, but sometimes somewhat lengthy, explanations of all kinds of things that appear in the orators. And this had never been translated into English before. This work hadn't. Uh, it, it is, there are a number of entries that are dead precious to us that are the fullest accounting um, of some particular ancient phenomenon or otherwise provide information that we just don't get from any comparable source that early. And yet the whole thing had never been translated into English. But it's all broken down into little bits, right? Entries. So this was the perfect kind of material to mobilize multiple students around, uh, multiple individuals around, because part of what you do is done when you finish translating uh, a single short entry. You're done, you can move on to the next. There are 1,200 of them, and eventually you have to get through all of them. And as you go, one of the things you learn is that in order to understand any single entry, you have to have a global understanding of the whole, just like any literary work, uh, scholarly works are no different. But that first round of, let's see if we can control this material, is, is dividable um, in a, a really nice, simple way. So we organized and we plowed our way through. And um, we, with the assistance of um, my colleague Ryan Bauman in the library, built a little interface that allowed other people to help. It's just a very vanilla website in which there is a list uh, of the Greek entries and their headwords and a link that says, if you want to add a translation for this entry, click here. <laughs> and we and others did that and uploaded translations. And if you see that there is a problem in a translation that someone else has added, there is a link that says, add a new version of this translation. Uh, and you can do that. So what this page contains is at least one translation for all of the roughly 1,200 entries, and in some cases, multiple translations, where we uploaded one and then someone else came along and said, oops, guys, you made a mistake. Here's how I would do it. Or somebody else uh, entered one before we got to it. Um, and we said, oops, uh, thank you for helping us out. We would do it a different way. Um, here's that. We finished the first pass, and it was great. So Josh's online harpocration is a lot more like UrbanDictionary.com than the Oxford English Dictionary. Both are available online, but at OED.com, you look up words, if you have a subscription, and see what the editorial board of the dictionary says about what those words mean and how the meaning has changed throughout time. At UrbanDictionary.com, it's the users and readers of the dictionary who add words to it and provide the definitions. That's what's meant by crowdsourcing. Josh's harpocration is a lot more like this. He and his colleagues built a web page where a group of people, theoretically anyone who wanted to register on the site, could choose one of harpocration's definitions and translate it from ancient Greek into English. With this approach, they completed an initial translation of the whole lexicon in just a few months, something that would probably take an individual scholar years. I've linked to the site on our webpage, mirrorofantiquity.com, 
And actually, you can still make an account there and propose improvements to the translations if you so desire. It's hard, though, to shake the feeling that what Josh has been doing is nothing more than reading the dictionary for fun. Is having Harpocration online really worth all this investment in infrastructure and expertise? The funny thing about a fragmentary past like that of classical antiquity is that since there's so much we don't know, we have to make use of every tiny scrap of information we can get our hands on, even if that means reading a dictionary that they wrote for themselves. It can all seem so technical, but for Josh, these lexica were an essential part of his investigation into big questions about how citizenship worked in ancient Athens. In antiquity as today, citizenship was a hot-button issue. Athens is famous for having an extremely exclusive citizenship requirement. In one period, both of your parents had to have been citizens. And in all periods, you had to be a man to be a citizen. And they also had a very large population of non-citizen slaves and free people who didn't meet the citizenship requirements for one reason or another, called medics. It created a complex society with free citizens, free non-citizens, and slaves all living and working alongside each other, to say nothing of all the fine distinctions made within those categories along lines of gender, wealth, background, ancestry, and profession. And just as with social divisions today, there are questions about the extent to which those hierarchies were defined by the formal law of the land or by social conventions, which can, after all, be every bit as powerful. It's a set of questions that Josh thinks we need to turn to the lexica to answer. So, um, without getting too geeky about the details, a few years ago I got, I got interested in Athenian law. It was one of those subjects that had always scared me uh, and that I wanted to know something about but never, never managed to find the time to learn something about. So I figured I would just um, create a course and uh, get fixed in the schedule the date on which I was going to teach this course which would require me to not be a total idiot on day one. So I had to go learn some things. And that sort of set me down the path where, you know, eventually, if you're looking for things to do with law in the orators, pretty soon you're going to hit the ancient lexicographers, uh, part of whose tradition was um, uh, active commentary making on the ancient orators and on Attic Greek. So... I, I went from being interested primarily in law to making my way over to some of the lexicographers in order to try to understand more uh, about ancient law on which they often comment. And uh, I ran into a number of interesting entries that had to do with legal status of persons at Athens. Uh, various um, categories uh, of slave, uh, so-called metics. These were non-citizens who were resident at Athens. Um, citizens who had um, um, been enslaved and then uh, ransomed uh, and returned to liberty. A whole host of uh, things to do with individual uh, legal status. And it turns out that the lexicographers uh, have uh, collectively a bunch of entries that shine light on this scholarly issue. A number of them, on careful reading, seem to suggest um, 
uh, alterations to some fundamental concepts about the way legal status worked. And so it was just sort of like, you know, <laughs> pulling pulling on a thread uh, and, and watching uh, things that I thought I knew sort of start to slowly come apart. This uh, is an entry from Harpocration, this ancient lexicon that targets specifically words that appear in the corpus of Attic orators. As you can imagine, a number of entries in Harpocration therefore have to do with technical matters of law. One of the things he ends up describing is the various kinds of lawsuits that one can bring at Athens, who's eligible to bring them, under what conditions, what the penalties are upon conviction, that sort of thing. And uh, this uh, entry is for um, a particular action called apostasiu. Technically, it is DK apostasiu, a legal action for departure. And the entry goes like this. Uh, first, the word uh, that is being defined, the lemma, and then the particular entry explaining it. Apostasiu, for departure. There is an action granted against freedmen to those who freed them. If they depart from them or register another as prostates or protector or patron, and if they do not do what the laws bid. And those who are convicted must become slaves, while those who win the suit shall be finally free thenceforth. It appears many times in the orators, in Lysias against Aristodemus, and in Hyperides against Demetrius for apostasiu. And then there's a reference to uh, um, a sentence that Aristotle mentions about it. What captured my interest here is that one word, finally. Um, if um, those who win the case shall be finally free. The Greek is teleos. It's an adverb uh, based on the adjective that means, well, the end of something. Um, so finally is part of the meaning. Completely is part of the meaning. And the traditional interpretation was that uh, such individuals shall be completely free, right? Which contributed to a whole scholarship around the idea of partial freedom in law in classical Athens. And so I read this and start thinking, what would it mean to be partially free? So Athenians tend not to define liberty or servitude. In law, in any case, philosophers may, but not in law. So what would it mean to be partially free? Well, we know quite well what you can do to someone who is not free. You can beat such a person with impunity. Can you half beat someone who is partially free? Someone who is not free is ineligible to marry in Athens. Is someone who is half free eligible to sort of marry, right? None of this really made any sense to me. 
So I start driving down this road asking questions, some of which are answered by other entries in the lexicographers, some in other sources, some in epigraphy, about just what the heck freedom, just how the heck freedom functioned in Athenian law. So this is one simple case where just trying to get your head around a stupid little three-sentence entry and a century's worth of misinterpretation of a single adverb in that entry, you know, which has led to uh, a fundamentally, in my view, wrong conception of the way Athenians thought about liberty and servitude. An issue of really profound moment, you know, this is high stakes. Um, just careful attention to these fussy lexica gets you to a place where you can say, ah, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe, maybe we've gotten this all wrong. Maybe there is a cleaner explanation here. In this particular entry, if you just translate that adverb teleos, not as completely free, but as finally free, which is to say not subject to dispute in court again, which is a familiar use of, of this word, then... There's nothing here to suggest that Athenian law recognized the category of partial freedom, partial liberty. And the same kind of careful exercise when done across other materials, inscriptions, the orators, etc., yields the same result. In law, Athenians recognized servitude and freedom and nothing, in fact, in between in law. Social conventions and cultural conventions and that kind of status are a different kind of thing. Athenians were infinitely capable of describing gradations of their hatred and scorn for others. That's a different matter from what the law says. There are 1,200 entries in Harpocration's lexicon. They're not all equally tantalizing, but a lot of them are. So there's a real need for these lexica to be available for a lot of people to think about and study. And Harpocration's lexicon is only one of many surviving from antiquity. In fact, it's one of the smaller ones. So we decided, well, if we can do it with 1,200 entries, we ought to be able to do it with 20,000 entries, um, which might not have been a reasonable notion. So we decided we'd do Phocius next. He's a, a ninth century figure um, Patriarch of Constantinople, from whom we have uh, a number of extant works, um, letters, a really riveting thing called the Bibliotheque, or library, which is sort of notes and summaries and comments on everything he read. But he also wrote a lexicon, perhaps early in his life. We're not entirely sure. It is ambitious, um, it is quite long. It contains a raft of material that is not known about elsewhere, and it is of really considerable importance. I love the idea that this might have been written early in his life, <laughs> right? The idea that some young, educated person thought, I know what would be fun. 
let's sit down and collect all of the lexicon encyclopedias that I can get my hands on and slice them all up and, and churn them and turn them into something new that will be a massive description of what we know about fun things from antiquity. It hasn't been translated before uh, in full, and so we decided we'd build a class around uh, the same kind of translation project. So here at Duke, we had concurrent undergraduate and graduate classes, uh, met at the same time, worked from the same syllabus, uh, and then another pair of classes uh, at the University of Missouri, taught by my colleague Matthew Farmer, and we all taught the same syllabus, and the project of the four joint classes was for the students to arrange themselves in teams and work out the business of translating as many of the 16,300 entries as we could. And we just got to work, started dividing up the labor, and started plowing our way through. This morning, I, I checked, and um, the classes are done about 4,000. Uh, about 3,000 of those are published to the public interface, available for view by anybody. These are students making mistakes in front of others, learning from the process, and just chipping away one entry at a time, um, doing actual work without a net. Some of the entries um, are very similar to entries that appear in Suda or in Harpocration, for which there are published translations. But an awful lot of it is, you know, students are in the wilderness and don't have the help of some prior translation or commentary, and they just have to dig in and do it. Um, and it's been incredible to watch. Of course Josh loves that Photius would want to make a collection of all the fun things we know about antiquity. Because that's exactly what he's doing with his Harpocration and Photius projects. And in a sense, the Photius project is even more daring than the Harpocration one. And not just because Photius's dictionary is so much bigger. With Harpocration, it was possible for anyone to contribute, but really, it was a core group of experts doing the work. With Photius, They've opened it up to anyone in the world who wants to contribute. If you want to jump in, it's linked at mirrorofantiquity.com. And for a project like this to work, one so huge, one so open, you can't apply a traditional model of scholarship to it. You can't have the individual expert sitting in his office working alone. He'll never get through it. It will never see the light of day. You need a different model for how to do things. And you might just need to look outside scholarly models to find it. That's where punk music comes in. One of the things that we're trying to cultivate with the Focius Project is the idea that, like, this is hard, but you can do it. Just go for it, put it out there, and we'll, we'll see uh, whether someone wants to improve on it, or we'll see whether it's good enough. But in any case, the, the important thing is you, dedicated individual, just going for it and taking ownership of the thing that you produce. I view that kind of scholarship as scholarship without a net. You know, translating a document, editing a document that almost nobody has touched since its creation in antiquity. And um, I, I think the students, maybe not all of them, um, but I think the students got a bit of that taste of, of what it's like to have to just hammer out a text that makes no sense until it starts to make some sense. 
everyone is just sort of winging it. You know, it's hard not to look at a, an album with like t- 28 one-minute songs <laughs> and think that there's not something similar going on there. Um, if you just look at the output of the Minutemen, you ever hear the Minutemen? I mean, they just, I don't even know how long their catalog is. It's hundreds of songs. And you just have the sense that, you you know, they were in their practice space and something magical happened and they were just like, yeah, do that. And then, you know, moved on to the, to the, to the next thing. I saw this, um, an interview with, uh, a a, a documentary that was made about the, the Minutemen. They were interviewing them years later and, uh, they were talking to the drummer, um, who, who was just. He was amazing. And they played him. I think they, I remember they played him a clip of them in their early days or something like that. Or or maybe he was just thinking about having seen stuff that a recording of an, of an earlier concert or something like that. And his reaction was something like, oh, man, I can't believe I was actually able to do that. <laughs> Right, like here, here is a guy looking back on you know the earlier heroics of his youth and being impressed by himself. There's something fantastic about that. I think it kind of, I think that it grows out of this um, this culture of just going for it, just driving hard, just taking the resources and intellectual assets and knowledge that you have, and and going for it. Um, and you might look back on that and think wow, Um, I did that, and that's impressive to me now, years later. There's some some sense of that that I wanted to cultivate with the Focius Project. Uh, That feels kind of punk to me. Just go for it, and then move on to the next, and do it, and then move on to the next. Because there is a, a huge pile of things to get through, Most of them, when you first look at them, uh, seem very simple. And a great many of them, when you get into it, are actually really hard. And if you don't have some some sort of motivating sense that you're contributing something good and of value and you're going to do what you can and you're going to work hard and then move on to the next and just make a dent in in this big pile you're never going to really have the spirit to get through it, right? Because otherwise, you pick a short entry, it seems kind of easy, you realize it's really hard, and you think, well, why should I even keep doing this, right? But if the idea is you're going to do what you can, and you're going to leave it in a better state than it is now for the next person who comes along, and you're just going to offer what you know how to do and make it better, and then move on to the next. This idea that you don't have to do anything that is like an object of perfection or art or beauty. You're just going to do the best you can, lay a brick, and then lay the next brick. I think people get into that. Um, I do. Uh, it, It seemed to work for the students. Like the first day when we started entering stuff into the public interface... Uh, we spent the first half of class talking about what we were going to do. And then we just all started working on our laptops. And the end of the class period came by. And I said nothing. And a few minutes later, I said, it's the end of class. You can all stop. And one person realized, oh, I have to hustle off to a class and closed his laptop and left. And nobody else responded. They just kept on going. And everybody left. And one undergraduate was still in the room. And I said, 
you know, class ended 15 minutes ago. You can leave if you want. And he's like, no, 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 no. I, I'm almost done this one. Um, and I think it was because they had this idea that I just have to finish this little bit to the best of my ability, and then I can send it out there and move on to the next. It's empowering. And when your model is punk music and an aesthetic that so forcefully disavows traditional forms of perfection, you're going to produce a kind of scholarship that's in some ways just as disruptive to the status quo as punk music was. The status quo in scholarship is blind peer review, a process by which a scholar writes something and then submits it to the editor of a journal or publishing house, who then sends it to a group of experts to review and comment on without telling them who originally wrote it. They read it, decide whether it's right or not, send it back to the editor with their comments, and then he sends those comments back to the scholar without telling her who made them. And then, usually, the scholar rewrites the piece to address the comments of the reviewers and sends it back for another review and so on until eventually the piece gets published in an academic journal or book. There are some good things about the process, but it makes collaboration difficult and it takes an extremely long time. A project like Focius Online solves some of those problems and doesn't compromise on the strengths as much as you might think. Well, I actually take the view that almost nothing that happens in the online publication space, in the so-called digital humanities space, that is of significant value differs substantively from so-called traditional humanistic scholarship. Some of the things that are dead important in the online space are unambiguous reference, unambiguous attribution, persistence, clear observation of standards, disambiguation of persons and places, and any other kind of claim that you might want to make. And none of that differs in substance from the basic requirements of paper scholarship. One of the ways in which the digital medium differs, but I'm not, but I do not believe that the the scholarly product itself differs. One of the ways that the digital medium differs is that it allows you to present, along with your final product, things that you might call notes toward the final product, drafts toward the final product. Now, for this first experiment with Harpocration, we decided that this project was going to have no editorial component. That is, we were not going to be in the business of curating translations, of putting a stamp of approval on the translations and saying, ah, this is the version that we four editors vouch for. Mainly because we just wanted to get it done. Uh, this had never been translated before. We didn't want to discourage anyone from participating, and we just wanted to see what would happen, right? So right now, there are entries for which there are multiple translations, but somebody who doesn't know Greek has no way of telling which of them might be better than the other. As we transition to Phocius, uh, we figured, well, that first experiment is now done. We have a kind of handle on how the technology will work. And so one of the things that the class has been doing in collaboration with our software team is to describe 
how that editorial model is going to work for Photius. And there, it's a pretty simple model. Both of them are predicated on the idea that you never throw anything away, right? So if 10 people propose 10 different translations of a single entry, we do not take the best of all of them and build it into um, a single curated translation and then throw away those 10. We do not do that. Um, those 10 will always be visible. It's the most brutally honest way of representing individual scholarly intervention uh, against the material, right? We don't touch anybody's translation. We don't edit anybody's translation. We don't throw away anybody's translation. So if somebody uh, suggests a translation that is just great and we don't have anything to add or change to it, we will flag it um, as being both peer-reviewed and recommended. Um, there can be more than one of those because there can be more than one good translations and they may differ from each other. Um, if somebody uh, enters a translation that's pretty good, uh, it, we need to change three things um, and then it will be ready to go. What we'll do is clone that translation so that the original submission persists. We will make the three changes we will attribute the translation to the original contributor and indicate that we have made the following three changes. And then that text will get marked as peer-reviewed and recommended. So that any reader will be able to look at the two and instantly see, oh yeah, this is the one that Curtis um, uploaded. It was um, almost perfect. The editors think that these couple of words should have been different and Ah, I see they've made those changes in the thing that is marked recommended and peer-reviewed, and authorship is attributed to Curtis. So the spirit of it is the same as Harper Creations. That is, we don't throw anything out. You should be able to tell instantly what any individual has done. But there is slightly heavier editorial intervention and curation uh, added on top of that. What we're doing is not... There isn't an absence of peer review, but rather a difference of peer review, right? So everything that made its way to Harper Creation Online was read by multiple individuals. Now, we were colleagues um, sitting around the table and known to each other, and so it's not the kind of blind peer review you get um, in some other setting. But there is a kind of review. Not only that, we open it up to correction by anyone, which is also a kind of peer review. Uh, it is one that happens after publication rather than prior to publication, but it is a cognate mechanism of review, correction, improvement. It's a more transparent one. It's also one that's more flexible because you don't have to hustle to make sure you get it right before you go to press. You have a much longer runway to fix things uh, as you can. I think one of the th mistakes we make about peer review is to think of it as a kind of binary fact. There has been review or there has not been review. When in fact, peer review is a fairly elaborate ecosystem. There are lots of different versions of it. And um, it's much more interesting to think about 
flavors of review that you will build into different steps of the process than like, well, this is kosher or isn't kosher. The Academy is definitely a place where people often try to define what's acceptable and what's not, what's real scholarship, and what's not. We justify it by saying that we need to maintain standards, but on the flip side, it can have the effect of keeping out people who don't fit into our predefined models. And the truth is, fans of punk music aren't immune to this tendency either. Neither are the people Josh meets in his other hobby, cycling. But really, there should be enough room in all three domains for a lot of different ways of doing things, for anyone passionate about them. The roads are safer for cyclists when there are more of them out there. Our musical tradition is richer the more styles we have. And our knowledge about the ancient world grows most when we stop insisting on one way of doing things, on one way of talking about things, and on one way of defining what's true about antiquity. So um, I'm not any kind of expert uh, in punk music. There are people, who, scholars, who are experts in this. I'm not one. Um, but, you know, one of the things you, you I noticed uh, in the punk community in the 80s when, when I was little was somehow a devotion by all parties to their own version of what authentic punk was or meant. And you see a similar kind of... I don't know, extreme tendency toward camps in various kinds of cycling communities. Both of them are sort of communities in which um, participants have their own strong views about like what the real version is, right? Like your bike shouldn't look this way and that's not real punk music. Oh my gosh, how could you even take a photograph of the non-drive chain side of your bike? Right. Like that's unacceptable. Or the angle of your bicycle saddle is stupid and the angle of my bicycle saddle is better. But uh, historically, cycling hasn't been that way. Simple bikes opened up a world of opportunity to people who um, of modest economic means who couldn't get to some place in order to get work or who were women and didn't have the kind of mobility that others did, or simply couldn't afford to own a horse to take them to some particular place, or a car. There was something sort of deeply popular and um, engaged uh, with regular people that cycling opened up. Not immediately and not in all cases. When bikes were first owned, it, they were not a popular thing. They were expensive um, and only some people could afford them. But there were all kinds of uh, just new ways of experiencing the world that cycling opened up. I don't care about whether the components I have are fashionable or go together in smart ways or, or anything like that. It's the experience that is riveting to me. What I like best about riding a bike is the feel of doing it, of the chance to spend all day eating multiple cheeseburgers, going up and down hills, getting chased by dogs, uh, and at the end realizing like, oh man, that, like 
I do not live anywhere near the coast. I woke up this morning nowhere near the beach, and I'm now at the beach, and I got there only by, like, the strength of my own legs and my own persistence, and I'm getting to eat pancakes along the way, right? That's what's fun to me. Punk music was always uh, the same way. Uh, I would see lots of shows, uh, bands that were similar or or not, um, but they were all things that spoke to me and got my blood going and, and pumped me up and were exciting. There is an analogous kind of position uh, in scholarship, but not completely, right? It truly doesn't matter whether you like campy group sets or SRAM group sets. As long as you're riding your bike, it's fine. As long as you're having fun, it's fine. In scholarship, it does matter if something is factually inaccurate. There, there is a place for some gatekeeping, right? Things that hold a claim to scholarly value have to be very clear about who proposed this and when, and whether we think it has reasonable claim to accuracy. If so, why? If not, why? So, in the scholarly domain, it's not just whatever you want is fine. There has to be a role for gatekeeping. Perhaps the analogy in cycling is the bike has to not fall apart while you are riding it, right? So, but given that difference... When it comes to matters of historical interpretation, there are lots of things that we can't prove. And really what you're talking about is weighing three or four different explanations of some particular event, each of which has certain things to recommend it that make it seem like it may well be true, and certain things to stand against it that make it seem like mm, that might not be true. It's very rare that we have arguments that are in all dimensions perfect and it's hard to imagine what a competing argument would look like. In our business, most of the time we're comparing things that are imperfect and have different strengths. This is really the case in translation, where it is just not the case that if the translation is correct, there's no other way of doing it. Translation doesn't work that way. Um, so you have to imagine, I think, um, in, in a tool that means to translate, uh, ancient sources, you have to imagine, um, a, a world that says there are multiple ways to be, to meet the bar, uh, in, to meet the scholarly bar. There are multiple ways to be good enough. So much of scholarship aims at objectivity. It's trying to be right. That's how many scholars, whether they know it or not, define beauty. The punk aesthetic says forget about beauty. Do what you can do. Put it out there. Get on to the next thing. But to implement this, we have to become okay with the feeling of uncertainty about whether we're right. We have to become okay with dissonance. We have to become okay with noise. I always tell my students that uh, 
Their own sense of their own ignorance is one of their best assets. Let your confusion guide you. You read a text, something doesn't make sense, right? That's likely to be either because you don't yet know enough, or there's an actual problem in the text. And so keep on going. Read parallel texts. Read the scholarship. Now are you still confused? Yes, I'm still confused. <laughs> keep at it. And when you've exhausted all possibilities that it really doesn't seem likely that it's just that you don't know enough yet, now you know there's a puzzle. Right? Now you know there's likely to be something going on in the text itself that is either a problem and needs fixing or is, uh, represents a collective failure on the part of uh, the scholarly community to figure out what's going on. I don't mean failure in a dismissive way. I mean, we just haven't yet gotten it. So follow your, your own sort of uneasy sense uh, of confusion. And that just requires keeping at it inching forward, reading more, asking more questions, trying a different line of attack on a particular problem until inch by inch you get it. And never throwing anything out, right? <laughs> Your file of problems you couldn't quite solve should always be 50 times bigger than your file of problems you did solve. And never throw <laughs> the former away, ever and occasionally come back to those sorts of things uh, because eventually, as you start to know more, uh, you, you might discover solutions to them. With traditional peer-reviewed scholarship, after you publish, you're done with that piece. With punk scholarship, you have to, or should I say get to, keep working on it. 1,200 entries of Harpo Creation are online, now someone needs to correct them. Now someone needs to smooth out some roughness in the translations. There are still 16,000 entries in Focius to go. But it's only daunting if you're stuck in the traditional way of doing things, where you have to do it all yourself, and where the final product is the only thing that counts. Instead, think of Josh, out on his bike, in the middle of the night, punk music on his earbuds, one pedal stroke at a time. Relentless forward movement. I mainly ride on roads, um, often uh, on dirt roads when I can. I like short rides, I like long rides, I like rides that take many days. What I mainly like is sort of settling in putting my head down, and then just turning my legs over and over for very long periods of time. And to tell you the truth, I, I'm not even... I, I like it when there's good scenery, but in fact, that's optional for me. Uh, I mainly just like to, like, check in, zone out, and go real far. I've ridden 27 hours um, straight. I was aiming to do a, p a particular stretch, and I thought I might make it 40 hours straight, but I didn't quite. <laughs> the body sort of gave up. but uh, So it was a fail, but it was uh, fun to learn what my limit was.
the things that I that I like about it uh, are that y- you just the cumulative effect of doing the same simple thing over and over and over is unexpected. You sort of settle in, you start pedaling, couple hours pass, uh, you're not really thinking about very much, uh, and you realize, like, oh, I'm in Maryland now. I wonder how that happened. <laughs> um, chasing those moments is kind of great. Realizing that, um, oh, holy cow, uh, I just climbed a mountain and I don't really remember ever getting out of the saddle. I must have, because I did it. But I have, I don't really remember shifting. I don't really remember having to stand. That's the kid who just keeps on going after the class is done because, like, time has sort of stopped for him. And, and what he's chasing is finishing the next entry. Where you're confronted by an entry that a month ago would have seemed really hard, but now you just, you just nail because you know how he's working or you know, oh yeah, this is one of those things where his source is Elias Dionysius and Elias Dionysius tends to, uh, tends to look this way rather than somebody else. Um, and you know that now and you just sort of do it um, because like, you're more knowledgeable in actually measurable ways than you were the week before. You can watch all of them getting a little bit better as the semester goes. Those kind of you know, quiet, oh wow, that's kind of remarkable moments are really worth chasing and, and pretty wonderful. Joshua Sosin teaches classics at Duke University. In addition to the online Harpocration and Focius projects he described today, he's the director of the Duke Collaboratory for Classics Computing and the co-director of the Duke Databank for Documentary Papyri, which was one of the first digital projects in the humanities when it started in 1982. In its current form, it collects online a huge number of examples of ancient writing on papyrus from museums and collections around the world. There are links to the Collaboratory, the Papyrus Databank, and of course to Harpocration Online and Focius Online at our webpage, mirroraventiquity.com. The Mirror of Antiquity is produced by me, Curtis Dozier, with Lucy Rosenthal and Yasmin Smolens, and the support of the Vassar College Department of Greek and Roman Studies and Academic Computing Services. Special thanks on this episode to my Vassar colleague, Barry Lamb, who's the producer and host of a podcast you should definitely check out. It's called Hi-Fi Nation, and in each episode, Barry and his guests explore the intersections between regular human experience and philosophy, everything from war to cover bands. He's just wrapping up his second season, so give it a binge at HiFineNation.org. I have a link to his show at MiraOfAntiquity.com, as well as a playlist for the music heard in this episode. Thanks for listening.